Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I will be in dialogue with Katarzyna Persson and Johannes Deiter Steinart regarding their newly published book, Pshemish Bova Concentration Camp, The Camp, the Children, the Trials, published in Cham, Switzerland by Palgrave Macmillan Publishers, 2022. It is an honor to be with you today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourselves? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life catalyzed the scholars you are today and the scholars you are as an adult? Well, my name is Katarzyna Persson. I am originally from Warsaw, Poland. Uh, So I grew up in a very complex city with very difficult and complex history. And this is probably where uh, where my background is and where my research comes from. It comes from here. It's very much based in the city and was very much based in the history of the city from the very beginning. I wrote my PhD on the history of the Warsaw Ghetto on one aspect of it and then continued with the Warsaw Ghetto and then Holocaust and more broader. And um, this book that we are that we just wrote, so the Camp of Przemysłowa, comes, even though it does not really link the history of the Holocaust per se, it's a story of non-Jewish children mainly. Nonetheless, it is uh, it is very much the story of the complexity of experiences during the war and complexity of, of people's responses to it during the war and also after it. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to your readers? Well, this book came to me, and I think also partly to to Dieter, who should come up in a moment, uh, from our uh, work on the Kestenberg Archive, which is a collection of uh, testimonies of child survivors of war, mainly children who survived the Holocaust. But there was also a large collection of, of testimonies coming from, at that point, adults who as children were imprisoned in Przemysłowa. And this is really what first of my interest that there was a camp like that that existed even though at that point it was very little known and that uh, there's a group of children who then became very traumatized adults who, who had this experience of the camp and experience was very much for many uh, for many various reasons uh, silenced after the war what are the primary themes in this book what message do you hope to convey to your readers what story do you tell in this volume? Will I come in, into that now? Please. I'm not, not quite sure. Uh, so so I, I thanks for your very kind introduction. I'm, I'm Dieter Steinert. Live now for nearly 25 years or work for nearly 25 years in the, in the UK. I grew up in, in a village in the very west of Germany in uh, in a very mixed family my father was from poland my mother was from the from the dutch border region 
so a village boy who ended at, at the university because I had very, very good teachers and uh, they, they made me interested in archival work and sources and uh, so I, I, I finally did my PhD at the University of Düsseldorf and my habilitation at the University of Osnabrück worked for a while in Germany and then moved to, to the UK. What made me interested in was partly the Kastenberg archive, as Kasha has mentioned, um, but it was also my, my research on child forced laborers, which I'm still in. Uh, started with a book on Polish and Soviet children, published in 2013, then a book on Jewish children, published 2018. I'm currently working on a book on Sinti and Roma children. And it was that book on Polish and Soviet children uh, which made me interested in the camp because it had to do with forced labor, as we will see uh, late, later on. But at that time, I was only able to write a few pages about the camp uh, based on material I got from, from the ITS archive and Bart Aronson, Aronson uh, also from the Kestenberg archive. And I think Kasha and I met at a very early stage uh, in Jerusalem at the conference. And, and then we met again in 2018 at a conference in London and, and Kasha approached me and, and said, what do you think about, about the idea of writing more about that? unique camp and I said yeah that's that's absolutely great idea and within days we uh, we we agreed who should do what Kasha primarily should examine the the Polish post-war trial files from the late 1940s but also from the 1970s and I would uh, look into the German and, and that was the, the, the beginning of our cooperation, which started in 2018. And uh, just before COVID, we were in a state that we could start writing. So when, when COVID happened, so to say, I could go to my study. And then Kasha was a bit uh, different. She was at that time in, in Vienna had a harder time there at the beginning of COVID, but we could start writing uh, the book uh, then. For me, it's what I'm trying to, to analyze, to examine when writing and researching about child forced labor is to get an idea about German the brutality of, of German occupation policy and, and what comes out of it, what came out of it. And uh, so when doing this research, I think personally I, I got a new approach to my personal understanding of the Holocaust through the eyes of children's testimonies and, and also I, I got a new understanding how brutal and cruel German occupation policy in, in the East was, maybe so far at the moment. Thank you for sharing. Where was the 
Shemishwova concentration camp located? When, where, why, how, and by whom was it created? How was it built? Who physically labored to construct it? Mm-hmm. If I can continue, if you agree, please. please. Um, I, I maybe first some some facts about the camp before sure. I will try to explain why the camp had been had been created. Sure. It was only after long discussions, internal discussions um, of German occupation authorities in occupied routes, but also discussions between German authorities in occupied routes and Central SS and other uh, institutions in Berlin uh, that the camp had been created. And it was used from, from the 1st of December 1942 to January 1945, so roughly two years and, and some some weeks. January 1945, when Wutz was then liberated uh, by Red Army troops and the German camp authorities fled and the children uh, were free. Um, the reasons why the Germans imprisoned children under the age of 16 in, in a special camp uh, ranged from petty offenses to robberies, refusal to work. Children could be taken to the camp simply because German authorities didn't like them or didn't like them hanging about at public places because they were rough sleepers, had dodged fares in a tram or a bus. Um, children were also imprisoned because they had politically active parents, parents who had uh, been imprisoned themselves in camps or, or, or labor camps, camp, uh, parents who had refused naturalization. And, and we have to say that uh, it was a camp, as I said, for children under the age of 16, which was the only purpose-built concentration camp for children in uh, in the National Socialist era. And it was for Polish children, uh, non-Jewish Polish children uh, from the annexed territories. And that made uh, capacities free for the German welfare system to use the resources they had for, for German children. Um, to get a better understanding of this, we have to look at the German criminal police because that camp, as others, were under the jurisdiction of the German criminal police or security a police, a police who took over, who adapted after 1933 large parts of the National Socialist ideology. And they did it in, in a particular area in the area of crime prevention. Crime prevention was before 1933, and it is today uh, an aim and a task of any police force in the world. But with the adaptation of National Socialist ideology, planners within the police thought that they had to look at the genes 
that they had to look at education and social uh, uh, circumstances to prevent crime, and they had the idea of hereditary crimes. So if you imprison parts of the population, you will prevent crime. And that was aimed what the Germans at that time called uh, the asoziale, the asocials in particular, uh, or among others, Sinti and Roma, but also uh, Polish children who they thought should no longer be in the public sphere. And it was no coincidence that one of the planners was Robert Ritter, and, and he, in, in Berlin, and, and he was in charge of defining who is a Sinti and Roma, but also he was in charge of one of the uh, major youth camps in, in Moorin. So also the camp in, in Occupied Woods was unique because it was a camp for children under the age of 16. There were two similar camps for older German children, one in Moringen, north of, of Gießen, and one in uh, Uckermark, that's in walking distance to Ravensbrück concentration camp, where mainly, not only, but mainly German children aged 16 to 18 uh, had been imprisoned, maybe so far, if, if that makes sense, uh, what I've said. So we do not know the total number of children imprisoned in the camp. And having had a look at the, at the early literature, which came up from the mid-1960s onwards, uh, we realized that the figures were permanently increasing. 12,000 children had been imprisoned, said one source or one a piece of literature. And we also found uh, an article where it was said that over 20,000 children had been uh, imprisoned in the camp. Uh, more serious investigations, analysis uh, always said maybe, we, we do not know, but maybe between 1,500 and 2,000, or maybe just over 2,000 children had been imprisoned in that camp. And after uh, analyzing all the material uh, we, we had, uh, we, we agreed roughly to that figure of 1,500 to 2,000, maybe just over 2,000 children imprisoned in the camp. And in, in a similar way, the, the number of deaths of children who died in the camp increased over the time. So we found, and colleagues before us found 71 official death certificates, but we all agree that more children had died in the camp, but probably not thousands, maybe a few hundred uh, for, for different, uh, for, for different reasons, for malnutrition, starvation, torture to death, and then typhus. I'll come back to typhus uh, a bit later on. How does your research advance our understanding of trauma? Well, that's so very clearly, mainly because we do have, um, this is a truly unique story, as this is already said, it's a unique camp, an absolutely unique story uh, of a traumatic experience of children 
the majority of them aged 8 to 15, but also younger, who underwent, uh, underwent the camp and who, very importantly, and we'll get to it later, left testimony on their experiences because a large, large number of them left testimonies either during court trials or later in other, uh, in other ways. Uh, so uh, in this sense, it's important, but it's also very interesting when it comes to how trauma varied because, of course, we would also look at them as a unified group of children who had a relatively similar experience. But uh, studies of this group showed us how many various other factors affect childhood trauma and affect the traumatic experience of, of, of that camp, such as, of course, that of, of age, which is obvious, but also pre-war experience, whether these children came to the camp from home or whether they came from other correctional uh, corrective institution, whether they came from a prison, whether they came from a street, and all of that mattered. Uh, their um, their people background and where they grew up, how they grew up, and what trauma they already experienced before before getting to the camp, whether they were camp in the camp alone, or whether they were their siblings, that also mattered. Whether they had any contact with parents, so if there was any way they could still be in touch with parents who were outside the camp. And finally, what happens after the war, and that also is very important. So uh, that whether they were alone and they had to cope with what happened on their own, or they were, uh, they were part, again, part of a family. If there was post-war presence of parents, if these were parents who understood the experiences. So for example, in some cases with parents who themselves were in concentration camps, who returned from concentration camp to look after the children. Uh, so all of that mattered, all of that uh, affected how they experienced the camp. And, and very clearly, I think it was a unique case study of, of children traumatic experience of World War. Who was Camilo Ehrlich? Can you describe him? Yeah, uh, because uh, it's important to have some, some, some dates. So please uh, let me refer to some notes I, I uh, take. Cam Camilo Ehrlich was... Uh, the camp command uh, of of uh, the camp, but there were other camp authorities. But let's focus on on him. And we have to say that in Germany, uh, where after the war, uh, um, uh, these camp authorities, be it camp commander Ehrlich or camp leaders, uh, lived. Nobody had been taken to court. Uh, that's a contrast to what happened in. In Poland and Kasha, we will talk about it. Ehrlich was was born in 1893, so he was roughly uh, 50 years of age when he arrived in occupied wood as head of the police. He was born in in Saxony, 1893, and a member of the National Socialist uh, Democratic Workers Party uh, from the since the first of May 19. Uh, 37. So he was not one of the so-called uh, old fighters, Alte Kämpfer. He came in inverted commas relatively late in 1933 uh, to, 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 to the party. Uh, he attended elementary school um, and uh, secondary school in Germany. Before before becoming 
a Polizeianwärter, maybe we can translate that as a non-commissioned police officer in Saxony, in Plauen, and in the city of Leipzig. And that was be just before the First World War. He didn't make his exams, his police did not make his police exams uh, due to military service, and he was so in the German military then from 1914 to December 1918, decorated by the front combatant cross of honor. He left the army uh, as a lieutenant after three and a half years in December 1918, and immediately afterwards he attended a criminal police training course in Leipzig with the aim of becoming a higher police officer, and a year later already he passed his examination. As now as a trained policeman for summer of when he joined Reiswehr as a intelligent, secret intelligent officer, and in 1920 he then became Detective Superintendent, head of the police in Chemnitz, in Saxony, in, in, in Germany. In 1937, then he was transferred to the Reich Kommunal Police Office in Berlin, uh, a, a jump in, in, in his career. And also, also we, we do not have any documents. We can certainly say that he saw the chance of becoming head of the police in occupied Wood as a chance. The further step in his career, he left Berlin Berlin, in January 1942, went to occupied Wood to become not only head of the police, but also the, the discussions about creating the children's camp were, had already started. He became the commander of that children's camp in, in occupied Wood. And also, again, uh, we do not always have the documents we want to have as historians, but we can assume that he and his deputy were involved in the planning stage of camp. He was, his highest rank was Regierungs- und Kriminalrat, comparable to a major in the army, so a relatively high-ranked uh, officer, and he, as all the higher policemen, he had a concurrent position in the SS, and he was uh, in the SS uh, Sturmbannführer. We do not know a lot about his, his character, or he was very conservative, and he led in his uh, riceware uh, activities. Um, we know from testimonies that he visited the camp frequently. He watched the beating of children, uh, and when he entered the camp, to, according to some of the test post-war testimonies, uh, there was whispering among the children that the alter, the elder, the old guy, had arrived. According to one or two testimonies, he wanted to be addressed with his SS rank, a Sturmbannführer. Some survivors have described him as a tall man with glasses 
only very few former prisoners have remembered that Ehrlich has uh, abused them personally while others called him, to quote, the horror of, of the camp. And it was only in 1970 that Ehrlich was questioned in Germany, in West Germany, but uh, about the camp and his activities as a commander, but he was questioned as, as a witness. He wasn't accused of anything. Uh, he was questioned first as, as a witness by the public prosecutor's office in, in, in Munich, but was well known to German authorities earlier, but not in connection with his activities in occupied Wuch. According to a statement he made in 1973, that was one year before he died, uh, he had left Wuch in January 1945, just a day or two before Red Army soldiers marched into uh, the town and the camp. And then he was arrested and imprisoned in May 1945, what he called by the Russians. So we do not know what was it, civil authorities or military authorities, Soviet authorities, who arrested him. He spent time in Buchenwald, in the previous former concentration camp. Uh, in 1950, he was released, but as soon as he went, he left the camp, he was arrested by the police uh, of the German Democratic Republic, detained in the Zuchthaus Waldheim, and he was charged with crimes committed during his time as head of the criminal police in in Chemnitz and sentenced to lifelong imprisonment. That lifelong imprisonment lasted until 1956, when he was released and made his uh, way to the West. He wanted again to be a criminal police officer, but was rejected due to his age. And in the 1970s, late 1960s, 1970s, there were investigations in Germany against him and against other camp authorities. And I, I think a statement from 1978 that was four years after he had died, uh, made by the Hamburg Public Prosecution uh, Office, considered that note considered Ehrlich as possibly guilty of murder or accessory to murder due to a, let's try to, uh, to translate it as a breach of official duties or contrary omissions of duties. In German, durch Verletzung seiner Amtspflichten oder durch pflichtwidrige Unterlassen. But he was already uh, dead since 1974, and as many, many others from the camp, but also other German uh, authorities, occupation authorities, he had never to stand trial in, in Germany. But these investigation files around 700, uh, 7,500 pages printed material was one of the main sources we had for our analysis next to the uh, Polish files from the 19, late 1940s and then 1970s. What were the initial experiences of new arrivals at the Przemysłowa camp. What happened to them? How did they feel at the beginning? What were their first impressions? 
this is a very important question because the story of arrivals, one that's one of a few which appear in basically every testimony from the camp. This is something that was really important and, and really shocking and really inscribed itself in the memory of those who were um, former camp prisoners. In many ways, this is a story that is, uh, is typical of any concentration camp. So this is a story of arrival to the camp, of taking of a normal camp procedure, right? Of, of fingerprint, taking fingerprints, of taking photographs, of shaving hair, of taking personal details, of getting a number which is assigned per person, of being given a blanket, usually used one, and in bad condition, of being given a spoon and being given a bowl. Um, but of course, and of their beatings, of beatings which are meant as the initial breaking in of prisoners, the initial introduction to the camp. But of course, what is the key element here is this is not something that's happening to adults. This is something that happens to children. So this experience, shocking experience of, of the camp, which is completely incomparable to anything these children went through, and we already spoke that some of them came not from, from straight from families, some of them came from prisons, some of them came from other camps. Some of them went, went, came from corrective facilities, but nonetheless, none of the experience they had before, and they all basically underlined that, was in any way comparable to what they experienced when uh, when they came to Przemysłowa. So what they had is the experience was shared by everybody who arrives to camp, which I already mentioned. But on top of this, we have this extreme fear, this complete uh, lack of, uh, of uh, realization of what is actually happening. We have uh, being separated from parents as well, being separated from siblings, from the family members, from the peer group. This is something that is also is sort of an added, added on top of the experience of, of regular experience of grown-ups. And then on top of that, we have the reality, everyday reality of, of, of uh, life in the camp, which they very quickly have to become, have to become, they can't really get never accustomed to it, but which, which they have to in one way or another, get used to in order to survive. So uh, this shock of, of the camp, the shock of the first minutes, hours in the camp is something that clearly affects all of them, irrespective of, of the backgrounds. What forms of forced labor did, vic did victims of Przemyślowa endure? Well, that's an, that's an area we only know about from uh, uh from from the because uh, um, nearly all the campfires have not survived the war, have been destroyed, have been maybe they have survived and have taken home. We know that uh, some photocopies, which now can be found in the archive of the Institute of National Remembrance, in in what also uh, they come clearly. Uh, from an archive in the Soviet Union, we know that other files, uh, in particular personal files, have been taken home. So it's, it's very limited. Um, but but we know about uh, uh, many links between the ghetto and 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 this camp, uh, although it was was clearly separated, and uh, uh, that was a camp which was not. The get as nowadays some historians uh, uh, want want to tell us it it was separated, but but there were links. One of the link uh, links was 
uh, that Jewish workers from the ghetto uh, were deployed to build the camp, which was in one of the derelict area of uh, occupied wood. And in December 1942, some belonged to the ghetto, but it then it was separated. So Jewish workers had been deployed, and, and we know names, we know the hours they had to work there because there is a quite a large file uh, from the German ghetto administration, the German ghetto administration, which gives, gives us uh, an, an idea. Another link was that later on, Jewish supervisors from the ghetto, together with non-Jewish, Polish, or ethnic German supervisors from the city of Wuj, they supervised the work of the children, in particular the more skillful work. Uh, so for construction work, you do not... Uh, uh, need so many kills if you uh, skills if you have to carry bricks or uh, uh, do similar things. But for the more skilled works, there uh, were skilled laborers, Jewish laborers from the ghetto deployed, or people, workers from occupied wood, they came in. And we do not know a lot about these Jewish supervisors. Here and then we find a very short remark in children's, former children's testimonies, uh, but we didn't find any remark, and, and that is important to counter nowadays attempts to declare the camp as a camp in the ghetto. Uh, we found not a single remark uh, that Jewish supervisors haven't behaved appropriately. We didn't find any remark that they have beaten the children. We found remark that guards and others had beaten the children, but not the Jewish supervisors. In contrast, uh, there, there's one remark in the eyes of the children. They were, quote, they were very decent people who came in. We know from secondary sources that some of the work uh, orders that came into the ghetto had been diverted to the children's camp. If the ghetto workforce couldn't manage the, the scope of the work, uh, then some orders had been given to, to the children's camp, but we do not know how many of these orders were diverted to the children's camp nor do we know what they exactly were, uh, what children had to produce uh, according to these orders. But we can assume that the range of products was very similar to what was produced in the ghetto. Of course, orders that didn't uh, uh, demand a lot of skills because we had to do with a child work workforce. And we can say that the majority of, of goods produced by the children in the camp uh, were for the German military. Again, very similar uh, to the ghetto. The, there was a settlery, for example, uh, that uh, produced uh, ammunition bags and belts. Uh, there was a straw workshop and made straw boots for soldiers, for German soldiers. 
at the Eastern Front, similar as it happened uh, in, in the ghetto straw uh, workforce. Uh, there was a production of straw mats for German military um, uh, vehicles in, in muddy and, and marshy uh, terrain. There was a cobbler's workshop uh, that where children had to repair as good as they could, according to their skills, army boots and army shoes. And in, in this area, we found some testimonies who, when children remembered that some of the boots were very bloody, full of blood when they came from the Eastern Front, and uh, very similar to what we know from uh, reports from the ghetto workshops that occasionally there was even human flesh or, or bones in the boots. And you can imagine the, the impression children had and the traumatic um, experience when they found flesh and human flesh and, uh, and bones in the boots they, they had to repair. There were workshops for plumbing, carpentry, painting, electrical work, glass work, uh, fabrication of artificial flowers, not for the military, uh, but for a firm in a civil firm in occupied wood, the wood flower pots, paper bags, things children uh, could produce. And there was a needle workshop, again, not for the military, not for military purposes, but long metal needles had to be repaired, repaired uh, for the textile industry was the area industry and then other industry. So the children had to straighten needles that came in with a hammer, uh, uh, with tongs. Uh, they, they, we know from report, they had to sit on, on high chairs in front of large anvils. Uh, they had small hammers. The needles were covered with paraffin or oil that splashed into the uncovered, uncovered ice uh, of the children when they were hammering the needles. Every child had to straighten, according to another testimony, 1,000 needles per day, uh, which was a very high rate for somebody who is perhaps seven or eight or nine years old. And children, we know from reports, were terribly beaten if they did not fulfill their piece rate per day and uh, they had to that included slaps in the face denial of lunch and, and physical exercises while the rest of the group uh, ate their soup at, at lunchtime we know from 1944 onwards there was a laundry in the camp maybe we have time to talk about sanitary conditions in the camp later on Laundry was introduced as a rea reaction of typhus, typhus outbreak in the camp, which the German authorities took very seriously, as they did, for example, later on, a liberated Belgian concentration camp. And work in the laundry uh, was done by, by girls, uh, and it was a very, very hard work to do. We know from one a girl, Alina was, was her name, who stated that the blankets and clothes were often full of lies, which had to be killed with a hammer before washing could started. 
Many blankets were full of urine and excrements. And for six months, half a year, she, Halina, had to wash these blankets while standing barefoot in cold water. Permanently, for hours and hours and hours, barefoot in cold, very cold water, ice-cold water in the winter, um, which caused her lifelong pain in her feet, but also in uh, her hands. And as at all other working places, uh, children were beaten if they didn't do what German authorities expected uh, them to do. They burned their, their skin and, 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 and flesh at the hot steam. And one of the, maybe I can uh, add a few sentences, what happened in summer, autumn 1944, when the ghetto uh, was given up and the Jewish inhabitants had been transported either in a small group uh, to, to, to Germany, but the majority to Auschwitz-Birkenau concentration camp. At that time, children from the children's camp were deployed in the ghetto. They had to participate in the systematic looting of the ghetto. They had to carry things. They had to uh, to harvest the small vegetable patches in in the ghetto and and secure everything uh, that was in any way usable for the Germans and for the German uh, war economy. And uh, finally. A, a testimony from then 15-year-old Edmund, uh, which I found uh, horrifying. Uh, he was equipped with rubber gloves, and he had to physically search uh, the bodies of Jewish women who were to be transported, searched for gold. And during this procedure, the German officials who observed him, supervised him, made photos and enjoyed themselves. Thereafter, he remembered in his testimony, the children were undressed by the German, and the, German, the children were to carry out the search work, and they themselves were now searched by the Germans for hidden valuables uh, themselves. So I hope this gives you a, a small idea what children had to do uh, in in the camp, and there was agricultural work uh, as well. Can you describe the physical, social, medical, and psychological consequences of permanent hunger in Shemishvova among inmates? Of course, this is uh, something that maybe we haven't mentioned yet, but something that's obvious. The food at the camp, as in the concentration camp, was kept at starvation level. Children. Uh, were getting meals that were completely inadequate for their needs, for especially for needs of children who are still uh, still growing. Um, almost all testimonies speak of constant and permanent uh, permanent hunger. They were getting about two hundred grams of bread a day, and that was bad of very very bad quality, usually moldy or dry. Uh, they were getting some so-called coffee, so black liquid uh, of and well, very bad quality. And for lunch, they were getting a bowl of soup. And again, that soup was something that's 
constantly referred to in testimonies or something of horrific quality, sometimes with uh, bugs inside or with um, pieces of wood or with uh, made of unpeeled potatoes. So this is a food which is absolutely horrendous and which for many, many children refused to eat to begin with. But then, of course, had no choice but to, to submit and to actually eat it. They would get, just to give you the, uh, the scale of it, and so you can imagine better, they can given a spoonful of, uh, of, my, uh, of margarine or cottage cheese three times a month. So that really was absolutely completely starvation levels of food. And what is very important, again, we talk about children, so this is not a regular camp where maybe there could be a way of getting extra food in one way or another, or smuggling some food in, or getting through Wahi and getting somehow out somewhere else. Uh, they had no agency of their own. They had no chance of getting it from elsewhere. Um, so um, the issue of food is one that, again, just like the arrival of the camp, just like the hard work, just as very bad uh, hygienic conditions appears constantly over and over again testimonies from the camp. Who was Dr. Emil Vogel? Why is he noteworthy? Well, let, 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 let's start a bit what, 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 where, where, where Masha ended it. At, at the beginning, it was an incredible filth in the camp. So there, there was no sewer system. So till today, I didn't we we didn't find really out where how 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 they managed with own without system. So we we assume that the uh, uh, for uh, for the camp and and there was no running water. The only water that was available was groundwater, which had to be pumped. There were only a few pumps in hand pumps in, in, in the children's camp and imagine that perhaps 300 children in the morning gathered around one pump and, and they had 30 minutes to wash and clean themselves. So it was dirty, it was filthy, the camp was was, uh, was full of, of lies. German authorities reacted as they always do with, with force, not with improving the sanitary conditions, but with, by beating the children whenever they found the lies at the morning or evening hotels, the, the roundups, uh, it, it was it was beating. And it was only, as I said, uh, after or at the end of the typhus uh, uh, epidemic in, 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 the, in the camp where Dr. Fogel will come in. I will come to, to Dr. Fogel. Uh, that it the conditions in in the camp improved a bit. There were sick rooms in the camp, um, handed by Sidonia Bayer. Uh, I'm sure uh, Kasha will say a few words after afterwards by uh, about Bayer. She had some very basic uh, knowledge, a medical qualification. Uh, but she was known for her ex extreme cruelty, and children avoided to go to to her and to ask her uh, for 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 help. Uh, there's one report, post-war report from uh, Dr. Jan Kinrus, a Jewish dentist uh, from the ghetto, who was brought into uh, the children's camp, 
for one visit only, as far as we know, where he tried to treat approximately 30 children. And he stated that during the treatments, a nurse didn't say who it was, but we can assume it was Bayer. A nurse was standing next to him. He was not allowed to use any narcotics when extracting children's teeth. Uh, but the nurse, nurse threatens the children with whip, wiping, uh, whipping should they start to cry during uh, a tooth extraction. There were some Jewish doctors, as well as doctors from occupied woods, brought occasionally in into the camp, and best known uh, was Dr. Emil Vogel, who turns up in, in many children's testimonies in a very positive way. He was born in 1901 uh, in Prague, studied medicine there, had a surgery from 1930 to 1938 in Prague uh, until the beginning of the German occupation. At the end of October, he was uh, deported to the Wood Ghetto together with his wife and some other members of, of his family. And then the, I have to say, the, the children's camp was not the only camp carved out of the ghetto. There was a previous camp, a so-called gypsy camp, at Zigeunerlager, uh, where 5,000 uh, Roma from the Burgenland in, in Austria had been deported to and in late 1941, early 1942, a year before the children's camp had been established, uh, there there was uh, um, typhus in the so-called gypsy camp, and Dr. Fogel was one of the Jewish doctors who were deployed in the gypsy, so-called gypsy camp, where seven, as far as we know, 719 Roma died of of typhus. Vogel himself came down with typhus while trying to save the Roma. He was smuggled out of the camp by fellow doctors, brought secretly back into the ghetto, into one of the ghetto hospitals where, where Czech doctors took care of him. And he was in December 1943. Later on, he was already on the deportation list to be murdered when typhus broke out in the children's camp. That's now where he came in, because German authorities now took him off the deportation list because they thought, well, he has survived typhus, and that makes him, or brings him in the best position uh, to go into the children's camp and try to help the children. Uh, because typhus was feared by the Germans. It was feared by all armies because it couldn't be controlled effectively. So the Germans had an interest to fight typhus in, in the children's camp. And he was deployed in the camp, had to leave the ghetto, went into the camp, and he was accommodated. He lived in the camp until the end of the epidemic. Afterwards, he stayed in the camp until August 1944, uh, and he gave medical advice to the children, uh, tried as good as he could to help the children. Uh, he was then deported to Auschwitz, uh, survived, and, and 
died in Prague in 1977. Unfortunately, never ever has an interview conducted with Dr. Vogel. Maybe there is one, but we couldn't find it. Uh, but he wrote some some reports. Um, maybe some remarks how the children remembered uh, Dr. Uh, Fogel. There was Maria, quote from her testament. He was good. He was curing us secretly. He always cheered us up because he spoke with the soft voice. He was Czech and didn't understand Polish, but he knew German. I knew German too. He wore glasses. He was stooped. His face was slim and pale. He had a large head with thick hair. Even though he was a young man, he had started to go bald. He was gentle. I can see him in front of my eyes. He fought for us, arguing with Bayer. And from a second testimony, which, which I love uh, very, very much, on the survivor, child survivor born in 1936, um, she recalled the good Jewish doctor in a very similar way. Quote, I don't know his name, but he was a respectable, sincere man. He came to us, and he was a good soul. He had big teeth, which he showed in a big smile. He must have liked children, because that big smile on his skinny face looked scary, but the children weren't afraid of him. I remember him well. He was tall, stooping, slightly gray. He had a moustache, even though he was still young, and the gray, gray hair didn't suit him. He was a very good man. And what Dr. Emil Fugel and did in the camp was to save children. Children, without any doubt, died in the camp, typhus, but he helped to identify the ill children and to bring them, and he helped to bring them into one of the ghetto hospitals for treatment. And we know from reports from the ghetto hospital that a total of 273 typhus-infected children had been brought from the children's camp into the ghetto, into one of the reactivated ghetto hospital, and none of these children died in the ghetto hospital, and, and that was simply a miracle. It was due to Dr. Fogel, but it was due to the very skilled uh, Jewish doctors and nurses in, in the ghetto who helped the children uh, to survive. So, so far, Dr. Emil Fogel. Who was Eugenia Paul? Why is she noteworthy? This is a, a very interesting person, one that sort of closes this story of people involved in the camp in a way that she's very different. She's uh, she is a folk switch, but she was born in Woods. She's a native of she wasn't born in Woods, but she was born near Woods. She was born near Woods, so she's a native of uh, of that area. And she came to the camp as a very young woman, as a uh, as a guard, and she became a guard in the in the girls' part of the camp. But why she's important? She's important because she became the subject of the main trial against um against the perpetrators of, of the camp in Łódź, which took place in Poland. As Dieter already said, in Germany there were investigations against the key players from uh, uh, from the camp, but not uh, there, there were no actual trials. In Poland we had three trials, uh, 
and I maybe speak about them for a moment, uh, the first two were carried out on the basis of the Alcos degree. So immediately after the war, there was a wave of trials in Poland against perpetrators linked to the Second World War. Both local perpetrators and uh, mainly Germans were, were captured or deported to Poland, repatriated to Poland, uh, deported back to Poland. And on uh, as part of these, uh, these trials, there were um, trials of two guards from the camp. Sidonia Bayer was the head of the uh, of the guards in the girls' camp, and Ernest August, who was uh, a particularly cruel, cruel uh, um, guard in the boys' camp. Uh, both of them were sentenced to death. Which was not unusual. This is how those trials usually took place immediately after the war. There was a great uh, need among the population, among the society for for justice, or maybe more rightly for vengeance. And these people were uh, were tried as as part of that. Uh, there was a third uh, guard from the camp who was also tried, who was also in, uh, kept in prison, but he was he committed suicide or was lynched in in prison. So this trial never took place. So these are the first trials that take place in Poland among uh, against uh, guards from the camp, and again they're not particularly noteworthy in a sense that they took place as part of a massive wave of immediate post-war trials, which are done very quickly. They usually take a few hours. There's very few witnesses. In in case of uh, of Sudan, Bayer, there were I think five uh, five children who are uh, who are testifying in her in her trial. In the, the other one, there wasn't even one. So these are very quick camps, very quick trials, which are very quickly resolved. Uh, but the trial of Eugenia Paul was very different. This was the big trial that really brought the, to the attention of the society the presence of the existence of the, of the camp. It took uh, the trial, the preparation for the trial began in the 1960s, and it was really in the 1960s that the camp was finally um, became part in one way or another of of uh, consciousness, public consciousness of uh, in Poland. Up to then it was largely forgotten. It was for many reasons, uh, but but partly because it was a camp for uh, for uh, for social children. So this was not considered to be equal to other concentration or death camps which were uh, located in Poland. In 1960s with a changing political situation uh, a growing tension between Poland and um, West Germany, as well as a strong and growing anti-Zionist campaign uh, carried out by the communist government, which led to the underlining of the suffering of Poles as opposed to the suffering of Polish Jews. Uh, the uh, the camp became of interest for the government and became part of the official historical policy in Poland, historical memory. So uh, in that the trial of Eugenia Paul was really part of that uh, of that broader uh, phenomenon. It was a trial which lasted between 1970 and uh, 1975, so for five years. It was very, uh, very widely uh, commented upon and in the press, in the media. There were over 100 witnesses who testified against uh, uh, in the trial. The vast majority of them were children or former uh, former prisoners of the camp, the faults uh, and the crimes committed by by Eugenia Paul were clear. There was no doubt that she acted a particular cruelty as a, a guard in the camp. But why this was fascinating was because uh, 
this was truly, in a way, a clear-cut case. There was a very strong political mo motivation to sentence her as quickly as possible. Uh, she was clearly guilty. But nonetheless, as I said, the, the trial took a long time for many reasons, again. And the key of them, and that's something that's really a key element of the story of the, of the camp after the war, was that nobody believed the witnesses because the witnesses were children, former prisoners of the camp, at that point adults, but nonetheless clearly traumatized adults. These were people who had problems with finding themselves in the society after the war. People who often were brought to trial from prisons or from hospitals. People who had very strong physical problems, sometimes also mental problems. People who were uh, very stressed by the situation, who were finding it difficult to classify, who were finding it difficult to, uh, to create coherent uh, statements, who were sometimes giving conflicting statements. And uh, people who were simply uh, not, in the eyes of the court, in the society, reliable. So that is something that I think can be said of a trial. Maybe the story of the camp in general is that many of those people were not only victims of the camp, but were also victims of what happened after the war. So they were victims of this difficult memory of, of the persecution of, of people who are considered to be asocial. They were uh, victims of uh, lack of understanding of their experiences, victims of lack of understanding of childhood trauma, victims of lack of any sort of uh, structural support. And this was very, very clearly a clear during the trial of Eugenia Pola. Eugenia Pola was finally sentenced to prison. She, was, she remained in prison until uh, late 1980s. But, um, but I think this, this trial showed very clearly how, how difficult history it was. Can you describe the physical layout of the Przemyślova camp? Yes. So, um, the, the camp, I think I, I have mentioned that very briefly before, uh, was built in, in, in one of the most derelict areas, not only of northern wood, but also of, of, of the ghetto. So derelict there, there were only some workshops, Jewish workshops or ghetto workshops, to be more correctly, ghetto workshops in, in that area before it was carved out and separated from the ghetto and, and uh, uh, separated um, from the ghetto. It was in the northeastern part of the previous ghetto along the wall of the Jewish cemetery. And it has a, had a size of approximately 250 by, by 250 meters. It was divided into different sections, uh, but maybe the most important um, fact is that boys and girls had been separated uh, from each other, in particular at night. And, and therefore, we talk about uh, the, the, the boys' camp and uh, the girls' camp, and there were different German authorities uh, responsible for the boys' and for the girls' camp, and there were different uh, guards responsible for, for guarding uh, the, um, the deaf different sections of, of, of the camp. 
the earliest entry, we, as I said, we, we, we know a bit about the construction of the camp from the German ghetto administration uh, files, uh, but there are some entrances in, in the ghetto chronicle, which ghetto chronicle, one is from end of September 1942. I mentioned the camp was open, so to say, 1st of December uh, 1942, but this note or entry in the ghetto chronicle was from end of September 1942. It outlined that on the following day, a number of streets of the district of Marisin, Marisin, that's the district in in, in Woods were to be separated from the ghetto and a workshop for confectionaries, a cobbler's workshop, uh, had to be transferred to the ghetto. So very few workshops. The designated camp area was then fenced in with a high wooden fence topped with barbed wire and the wall of the Jewish cemetery was raised, what had been previously uh, one meter and a half to two meters, it was raised to three to three and a half meters. Additionally, small wooden houses were demolished in that area, while other buildings were repaired, and a few new accommodation barracks, blocks, were erected. And little later, watchtowers equipped with searchlights had been erected after the first prisoners had tried to escape. Children who had been de detained in the camp during the first month of, ex of its existence, or even in, in the weeks before, uh, were deployed in construction work. They had to assist the Jewish workers from the ghetto and were guarded and supervised by German police officers. The construction work included the demolition of unwanted buildings, excavation, transports of building materials, leveling the terrain, and road work. And the working day for these children in the early days of the construction work was 10 to 12 hours per day, uh, an enormous amount of hours for young children, maybe age 10 or 12 or 14, uh, and occasionally the boys were deployed in two shifts around the clock. So there were night shifts for, for the boys in construction work as well. And many boys remembered the heavy work with the road roller. Uh, it was a, a, ro a roller, two to three tons, very heavy uh, roller. And... Um, it varies a bit in testimonies, but most say that 20 to 30 children had to pull the roller uh, to, to pave their talent. At most other concentration camps in Germany or German-occupied Europe, building work was a never-ending uh, process, but that can't explain why there were hardly any sanitary uh, facilities in the camp. Uh, we, we talked about that uh, before, and the first sanitary uh, facilities were only uh, erected in early 1944 onwards after either consequence of the typhus epidemic. Nowadays, there's hardly anything left in, uh, in that area, 
maybe one or two buildings. The, administ German admi the administration building is still there, uh, but it was totally and utterly built over that area of which was 1950s in those days, modern uh, uh, flats. So that is hardly anything to see uh, from the former camp. What kinds of choiceless choices did Shemishwova inmates have to make? All right. Uh, this is a good question, but uh, one that really shows the difference between this camp and other camps. They didn't have any choices. The, the concept of choiceless choices, which apply usually to prisoner functionaries in concentration camps, implies that people still have agency, that they are able to choose between this or that. Children in Chesuwa camp did not have such agency. They basically had no choice. They had, they were not grown-ups. They did not have an option of acting this way or another way. They had to act as they were told if they were to survive. Um, there was no, you know, no option for even uh, basically nothing that you could do. That we know from stories from, for example, Auschwitz, of people sacrificing themselves for someone else or helping someone else or. Uh, you know, doing uh, participating in a, uh, in one way or another. These children were basically had to do as they were as they were told. They were not in any position to, in any way, um, make the situation more bearable. We know of some attempts at escapes. We know of few escapes, but this is really individual cases. The vast majority of children, in order to survive, had to simply follow follow the rules and were in no capacity to make um, to make any choice with that. Can you tell us maybe, about Oh, go ahead. Maybe I, I can, can add uh, to, to, to the sad story, a less sad story. We, we know that within the camp, a very few Jewish girls have survived uh, who saw obviously no other alternative to death then somehow tried to go into the camp and became a prisoner there in these dreadful, filthy conditions and circumstances. They managed to survive the Holocaust willingly in, 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 that, uh, in that camp. We, we know from, from a pair of siblings that one of the siblings managed, she was infected with typhus, uh, that uh, she managed to stay in the ghetto after being uh, for a while in the ghetto hospital, and 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 she survived because she gave a post-war testimony. Unfortunately, in the testimony, she didn't say what happened to to her sister, but let's hope that that she survived as well. And and there's also, uh, as far as we know, only one interview in the Shoah uh, collection in, in Los Angeles about a girl with, with a girl, interview conducted with a girl who survived by uh, going into this dreadful children's camp. Well, one of the great differences between the children's camp and other concentration camp was that it was for children only. And and we know from, from other concentration camps that often adults in these camps helped and supported the children. 
there was a lot of abuse, we know that, including sexual abuse, uh, but children received support and received the help of adults in these other concentration camps. That was not given in in uh, the children's camp in, in, in Wuch because they were only children. So they, they couldn't ask for help from from adults. We, we know that at the very beginning, some children uh, approached the fence which separated the children, their camp from the ghetto. They, they asked and begged for food, uh, 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 but uh, they, at the other side of the fence in the ghetto, there was starvation as well. Can you tell us about House 8? What transpired there? Uh, house 8 was one of the most notorious houses uh, in, in, in the camp. It, it was for bedwetting children. Um, we, we have talked already about the, the sanitary condition, the conditions under which children had to live and, and work, the trauma they, they, they experience. And, and one of the reactions of children was simply bedwetting. At, at, at first, the German, as often, they uh, uh, reacted with punishment and they took food of the children to punish them and might uh, thought that if you take food from the children and beat them up, uh, then they will not wet the beds the mattresses, straw mattresses. At night, another early reaction of the German camp authorities was that the children had been woken up every one to two hours to give them the possibility um, uh, to relieve themselves. And then late, later on, a bit later on, that problem was solved, in inverted commas, when special houses for bedwetting children or special accommodation for bedwetting children has been designated. And one was house number eight. Uh, and that makes sense to talk about house number eight because about this house we have most of the information. They were in different parts at different times, different houses in the girls' and uh, boys' camps designated for bedwetting children. And here the children had to sleep sleep on rough planks, on, on wooden planks. There were no mattresses. At the beginning in the camp, there were straw mattresses. Uh, but in, in, in accommodation like house number eight, there were planks uh, as beds. Uh, children could cover themselves with only one blanket and the accommodation was hardly heated during the cold period in in winter which didn't help at all uh, to get rid of the bedwetting the clothing of the children and the rotten planks of the beds never really dried the wet blankets were placed outside the building in daytime with the effect that in particular that in winter uh, they were often frozen when the boys or girls took them back into the house again at, at night. Children in houses like uh, house number eight had less food than the rest of the um, 
the children, uh, and they were seldom transferred to one of the infirmaries. Additionally, children suffering from tuberculosis and other diseases were placed in the rooms, and with the result that house eight was, according to the testimonies, regarded as a waiting room for death. Nevertheless, children had to work as far as they were able uh, uh, to work, but this had to happen outside and not in the workshops because these children permanently smelled of urine. And outside work, regardless of the weather, weakened the children's condition and resulted in further illnesses. So it was a a circle. And again here in in 1944, some improvements uh, took place. The roof of house number eight was fixed and glass was fitted in the windows. And from that description, we can assume that the roof in house number eight before that was leaking and that there was no glass in 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 the windows. Um, if we have time, I would like to quote from a testimony of somebody born in 1930. In the middle of the summer of 1943, I was releasing myself I was wetting myself. I tried not to do it. I stayed awake. I went to the toilet before sleep, but as soon as I fell asleep, I wet myself. I was reported every single time by the supervisor of the room. At the beginning, we had mattresses, but later on, they were taken away from everyone wetting themselves, and we were beaten for it every day. By autumn, we were all taken out of the camp and placed in a special block for twits. That is what we were called. And that time at the interview, uh, the interviewer put in a remark, which I quote as well. At this point, he started crying. He was shaking and wept for around an hour until he calmed down the interviewee. And then he continued, all of this was probably because of malnutrition and fear. We constantly had diarrhea and other symptoms. In that building, the roof leaked so that it rained on us, and in the winter, the snow fell in through the gaps, real snow. End of quote. Thank you for sharing. In what ways did survivors cope with long-term post-traumatic stress disorder? in later years in life? How were their adulthoods impacted by their experiences to the extent of your knowledge? How did the experiences that they underwent impact the kinds of parents and grandparents that survivors would become? And this trauma very clearly affected their lives. There's no doubt about that. As we already said, the camp was not classified in the camp after the war. Was not, uh, the survivors were not part of the, of the group of survivors who were helped by uh, by the government, by the organizations, they did not receive any help. They went back into the society. Uh, sometimes they were uh, in orphanages. Sometimes, very often, they escaped from them. A few children were managed to, to get back to their families. The families still existed, but in the vast vast majority of cases, these children from the very beginning had problems adjusting to to life in a in a society. They uh, they had problems with. Uh, staying in large groups of children. That's, of course, the first problem, meaning 
they they had problems with, with uh, finishing schooling, with getting any even basic education. They could not really get back into the framework of um, of education. Those children were successful in finishing their education, were often homeschooled at at uh, at home by the parents. But these are really and truly unique cases. So these are cases of people who had parents aware enough and educated enough to be able to give them that type of education. The majority did not manage to do this, and this applies even to those who came from middle-class families before the war, so came from families where there was already some sort of education before the war. Even those children who would normally assume in a regular circumstances to finish school and to go to university or at least graduate from high school did not manage to do so. They were uh, not able to, to, um, to study. They were also, uh, of course, physically ill. And they had various health problems, which uh, which resulted from hard work, from uh, starvation, from uh, uh, from uh, coldness in the camp. That is something that basically appears no testimonies. So various types of uh, of uh, often very uh, very strong physical physical problems resulting from uh, from uh, from the work and from this time uh, in the camp, and uh, and that often again, uh, of course. Like in among any other group of survivors, affected the way that they 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 were parenting, that they were doing the way they could, the best they could, but uh, but the traumatic events of the camp and traumatic experience of that camp very often affected it. The Kestenberg Archive, which we mentioned at the very beginning of this, of this podcast, which was one of our maybe not main, but one of the important sources for this book, uh, is an important source for this type of experiences because. The interviews conducted, they were conducted in the late 80s or early 1990s. So uh, were conducted among grown-ups already and people who already had families. And, and the interviewers were not only interested in the wartime experiences, but also in how these experiences affected their post-war lives and also affected their um, their family life. And it's very clear that it did, that these people had very strong problems uh, in um, creating stable life for themselves and for their families after the war. Many of them moved numerous times they could their problems staying in the in the same uh, profession so uh, the the effect of trauma was very very clear in the postal lives as we bring today's dialogue to a close can you kindly tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this book i uh, have gone back i mean this book really brought to me the importance of looking at voices which are usually silenced and stories which are still not well known and well researched, which for many years were not researched. And I uh, started working on, on social history of small ghettos. So smaller communities where uh, the actually majority of Holocaust, uh, Holocaust victims lived uh, and where the dynamics of everyday life might have been very different from the ones that we know from uh, from the world research now, ghettos of Warsaw, Krakow or Łódź. So uh, this is something I'm really interested in working on right now. Amazing. Mm. Dieter? Uh, yes, briefly mentioned before, I would like to uh, uh, to write a third book on child forced labor, and it will be on Sinti and, and Roma child forced labor. Um, and uh, that that is more a long-term project. In the shorter term, I am engaged together with a friend and colleague uh, from Virginia, former Virginia University, on on QB7, uh, 
QB7 was, was a famous libel case in 1964 in London when the Leon Uris, the uh, novelist, was taken to court in London by Vladislav Dering. Vladislav Dering uh, was a former Polish prison doctor in Auschwitz and he conducted um, surgeries for Horst Truman and Horst Truman uh, was involved in um, medical experiments in Auschwitz sterilization experiments mainly with boys and young men but also with some women of Greek and daring um, after the experiments with x-rays then did the surgery a work for Boss Truman by uh, removing ovaries or testicles and uh, when Leon Uris wrote in his famous book Exodus about a certain Dr. Daring in Auschwitz who conducted seven, had conducted 17,000 uh, surgeries without any narcotics, which was wrong, it was less than that, um, then Daring took Leon Uris in 1964 to, to court in London at Queen's Bench uh, room, courtroom number seven. Later on, Leon, Leon Uris wrote a novel, partly fact, partly fiction, about the trial case uh, entitled QB7, and there was also a uh, very famous um, a movie screened after Leon Uris's novel with uh, Anthony Hopkins as uh, play, playing Dr. Daring and... Um, Syndically, I say maybe, maybe that was the beginning when Anthony Hopkins started uh, to play the baddie scene in the film. But maybe we shouldn't have that in the podcast. Thank you for sharing. And thank you for all the wisdom and erudition and detail that you shared during the course of our conversation today. Today, I have been in dialogue with Katarzyna Persson and Johannes Dieter Steinart regarding their newly published book, Pshemishvova Concentration Camp, The Camp, The Children, The Trials, published by Palgrave Macmillan Publishers, 2022.